everyone, and welcome to the Macabre Family Podcast. Before we get started, I just want to say how happy I am that this isn't a visual situation because we look great. <laughs> oh my gosh, right? <laughs> Terrible. I haven't showered um, probably since the day before yesterday. <laughs> I showered the day before yesterday. <laughs> I know when I showered. Today is my showering day. I gotta shower, take a shower <laughs> when I get home, but it's been a long weekend for us here, but... We are here to do this. We're here once again with Kiki. Hello. And we're going to do part two of the John List saga. So since we really don't have anything else to talk about, let's just get right into it. So when we left off last time, John List had just killed his whole family, his three children, his wife, and his own mother. He set things up so no one would come looking for the family while he fled. He drove his car to Kennedy Airport, left it in long-term parking to elude the police, and hopped on a bus and went on his merry way. Wait, so he went to the airport, but he got on a bus instead of flying someplace? Yeah, he went to the airport to fake out the cops. Oh, gotcha. So all those jingle jangles you hear, those are... My dogs. Kiki's dogs. So you remember the phone call John made to Pat's drama teacher, but he only got the secretary? Yeah. Well, apparently, the uh, his teacher was there. The secretary just didn't let him talk to him. Uh, and he was pretty pissed. Um, Ed, which was the drama teacher's name, started to feel worried, but didn't tell anybody about what he was thinking. Because if you remember, Pat told him that if all of a sudden her dad says that the family went away, that means she's dead. Yeah. Um, even though... He didn't say anything after work. On November 9th, he drove past the list house. He saw nothing out of the sorts there because it, that is exactly what John set it up to do. All the lights were on the house, all the curtains were shut, stuff like that. By November 20th, when the play Pat was supposed to be in had its show, no one heard from Pat, and people did start to talk. Pat was one to, like, this was the 70s, so write postcards and letters to people if she was going to go anywhere. Yeah. Even if it was for, like, a short time. So, Ed, along with a group of Pat's friends, began driving by, by the list house almost every night. Several times, Ed would walk up the front door, knock or ring the doorbell, but, you know, who's who's going to answer? Right. You It'd be awfully weird a, if somebody did. Right? <laughs> you wouldn't think that was suspicious, though. Like, if you went more than one time and no one ever answered, but there's lights on? So, um, suspicious. He knew, I think, what happened. Mm-hmm. He knew, but he was trying to put it off like anybody would. Like, no, this can't be it. Like, her dad's not going to kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, after three weeks of Pat missing, her friends decided to mention it to the school because she was supposed to be in school. Well, the school was actually really curious as well because he, John had only put on the absent note that they'd be out for a couple days and it turned into a couple weeks. And this is a family that would never have any unexcused absences. You know, John was wicked meticulous and they, if he, they were going to be gone for a certain time, they would, he would have written it specifically. So in mid-November, the school district's attendance officer, Mildred, so cute. <laughs> Went to the list house and rang the bell and tried looking in the windows. Like I said, all the curtains were drawn tight except for one, which turned out to be from John's office, which reparted a little bit like somebody was peeking out. Yeah. Like, like sitting there looking out to keep watch about what was going on. 
A week later, she returned and nothing had changed. Ed had even gone to the police twice to no avail. They basically just said that there was nothing that anybody could do. So Wellness check? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I hear that all the time on the scanner. Like, oh, so-and-so called in for a wellness check on so-and-so. Right. They'll ping their phone and everything. But, I mean, this was 1971, I guess. On December 5th in the afternoon, Ed once again drove to the list house. He noticed once again that there had been no activity at the house, so he left. Of course there was no activity. I mean, yeah, was dead. Um, he decided over dinner that night that he needed to get into the house. It had been almost a month since anyone had all had heard from anyone in the list house. No po- postcards, letters, phone call. This worried Ed a lot, especially because of the last conversation he had with Pat. I get... You know, like, it's 1971. Things are different now. Right. I don't understand how nobody thought to get a hold of Helen's mother. The reason why... The the excuse he used to say, like, why they were leaving. Like, okay, they're nowhere to be mm-hmm. found. Nobody's heard from Let's call the reason why they're gone. Right. Nobody did. That makes sense, right? Yeah. So, the other thing that boggled my mind is... So, he had an excuse for the kids and Helen... But not his mom. Did she not go out very often? Or? No, so she does. Uh, we'll talk about that down here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe people assume that she will be with the family, but as we'll find out later, no. After dinner, Ed decided he was going to break into the house. He once again drove to the list house. Um, neighbors also started noticing things about the house as well. So all the lights were left on 24-7. So they started burning out. Yeah, okay. So, and he was pretty particular about his lawn, right? Yeah. Oh, wait. This was like late fall. Oh, it's winter, so December now. So that would be no. Yeah, no no worries about and the don't, lawn. No, don't worry if you remember last time. The day he killed people where people were dead in his house, he was out raking the leaves. Okay, yeah, so then that's weird, right? If he's not there raking the leaves. Yeah. Uh, After dinner, well, I said that. He was going to break into the house. Um, Ed parked his car in the back of the house so he'd go through the window in the basement. That way nobody would notice his car. He walked through the basement, starting heading up the stairs that led up to the main floor. A big drapery was hanging like a big curtain Mm -hmm. in front of the ballroom doorway. It had been pulled tight. Ed walked in and noticed, like, a dank smell, but other than that, didn't see anything since the bottom lights weren't on and all the windows were shut, so you couldn't see the moon through it. He went to the library, didn't see anything there, and then he walked back to the ballroom with a flashlight and showed the flashlight around, and by the fireplace, he thought he saw a big pile of clothes, and then he shined it a little more, saw a face. Oh, goodness gracious. So... He screamed Pat's name, ran out of the house through the back door, shutting it behind him. Once again, you're going to hear the little tickety tapties right. of the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> um, he screamed Pat's name, ran out of the house. And then instead of going through the window where he came in, he went through the back door and shut it behind him. For two days... He didn't say he didn't say anything to anybody. Why why not? Like was he just in shock or I think personally 
if he was afraid if he said anything, he was going to get brought into it like it's his fault. But right. if he didn't know that there was a confession letter. I don't think I could keep something like that to myself. No. But I couldn't also imagine coming up on a scene seeing four dead bodies. I feel like the first thing I would do is go to the police. That's exactly. I think also he probably felt guilty because Pat had told him exactly what was going to happen to her. And he walked in and saw exactly what she said. Right. He waited almost three weeks before going to the cops. Three weeks? Sorry, no. This was like Mm -hmm. when she first went missing. Uh He waited three weeks before ever saying like, hey, I'm worried about, I haven't heard from them or whatever. So, but if the cops handled it differently, did a wellness check, these people would have been found probably before that. On December 7th, after Ed sat on this for two days, he was at drama practice when a group of Pat's friends started saying, that's it, you know, we're going to go into the house, we're going to find out what's going on. So, for two days, he just went about his normal life. Like, seeing dead bodies, and he's just like, well, push that back. (laughs) Um, Ed, knowing what he knew, he volunteered to go himself and never told them what he knew. He said, I am the leader of this group, and I will go. Barbara Sheridan volunteered to go with him. If I was him, I wouldn't have let anybody come with me, but maybe he wanted a witness. Um, Maybe. But I wouldn't want to put that burden of finding that stuff on somebody else. But he had a plan. He pulled up to the house, like the front, mm-hmm. with his high beams on and made a big show of like being there, slamming his car door, leaving the high beams on. And this was at nine o'clock at night. And they walked up to the front door and Ed said loudly, well, I'm going to go up and take a look. The neighbor, Shirley, Shirley Cunnick, was listening from her porch. She too had become suspicious of what was happening at the list house. She noticed the lights burning out. And on top of that, she noticed Ed's car going by and pulling into the drive all the time. Shirley, and this is where we find out about Alma, had become close with Alma, which was John's mom, if anybody doesn't remember. And she would stop, Alma would stop over and visit Shirley, and they would chit-chat and stuff. In October, Alma told Shirley that John was sending her home to visit friends and family in Bay City in November. So she had an excuse to leave, which... I didn't find out till. So, did she know that he was going to kill her? No, I don't think so. Huh. Alma asked Shirley for a ride to get her shoes fixed at the cobbler's. No. <laughs> she was adamant she wanted them nice before she left. This had begun to bother Shirley that Alma left without saying goodbye and without getting her shoes fixed. With all the commotion going on in the front lawn from Ed and Barbara, Shirley sent her husband out to check out what was going on while she called the police to report an intrusion. So, Ed banged on the front door, trying the handle and shaking it. Then he went to the window at the dining room and started to open it. While he was starting to open the window, he heard sirens, so he stopped, went to his car, and sat in it. So, this is what his plan was all along, to, like, attempt to break in so the police get called so they can go in. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Westfield police showed up. Chris Haler and George Zelznick. They pulled out their guns, but relaxed when everybody was identified. They all explained that they were worried about the family. The patrolman walked around the house doing a check while Ed waited on the porch. The only thing that they saw was out of place was the basement window that was ajar from when Ed snuck in two days before that. After a brief discussion, the cops decided it was time to go in and check it out. 
Why couldn't they have done this a month ago? This is literally almost a month to the day. That's gross. Right? Uh, yeah. It's a month. A month since nobody heard from them. So, I just, I don't understand how nobody was like, maybe we should take this up. A little peek. Right. Ed and and the officer went through the window. Officer George noted a musty smell. Like a foul odor. Mm -hmm. Odor. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, He saw next to the window they climbed through. There were two fish tanks. One, all the fish had died. And the other was an automatic feeder. So those fish were still alive and kicking. Like literally the only things in the house that were alive. Oh my gosh, were fish. Not to be macabre about it. (laughs) Nudge, nudge. (laughs) He saw what I did there. Um, You know what it smells like when... A fish tank, like... When it's gross, yeah. yes. It, it smells musty. Like musty and... It's just, it really <laughs> just smells musty. Because, I mean, I've let Max fish tank get a little bit dirty, and it would stink. I remember when mom had the piranhas. Yeah. And we, the feeder fish, and those... Because they only took everything but the head, so the head would <laughs> be bobbing up around. That stinks, too. Yeah. Um, they heard musical, classical... Her musical classical, classical music oh <laughs> playing loudly throughout the house. Ed led the officer through the door from the dining room heading to the ballroom. Once they got to the ballroom, the officer shone his flashlight in the room and gasped at the sight of the bodies. Yeah. While the officer was gathering himself, Ed ran, ran to the front door and led, let the other officer in, Barbara and Shirley's husband, who was a doctor, came and they came into the house. I don't understand. Is he going to try to resuscitate them after they've been dead for a month? No, but this Ed knew what was there. And then he's like, come on in, more people be to be disturbed. Oh, my gosh. Let's go through the crime scene. (laughs) (laughs) Officer George was just standing very rigid next to the bodies. So Officer Charles kneeled down and grabbed the arm of Helen, which he later described as feeling like wood. He yelled for them to wake up. Not knowing was was like how far gone they were since there was no lights. Finally, somebody turned the lights on, and these are the only lights in the house that hadn't been left on, because in case somebody was able to peer into the curtains, right? He didn't want anybody catching up on the oh my god dead bodies situation. So, so this um, is a picture that no one there would ever forget, because obviously. There's four dead bodies just hanging. The kids are all still in their school clothes and their winter jackets. Helen is in her pajamas covered in a towel. And she had become bloated, obviously, Mm -hmm. in a month. So all the bodies were badly decomposing. Dr. Kunick, a specialist in internal medicine, started to examine the victims. He pointed out that they had been there a long time. There was disintegration on the fingertips and toes and small maggots were all over the bodies yeah and like i said they were very bloated officer charles rushed out to the car radio and put call it in the call was logged in at 10 10 p.m on december 7th this is just two days shy of a month since the crime occurred the officers had everyone go and sit in the dining room while they went through the house and searched for anything else this mass murder was the first murder in eight years in Westfield. So they go from, you know, a murder eight years ago to five 
Yeah. The police chief showed up and offered some officers to go and check. Offers. Ordered. Sorry. I don't know why I said offered. Offered. If you guys want to. Ordered. <laughs> some officers to go and check for Alma. That's where an officer had nearly tripped over her when he went to her apartment. Oh, I forgot he didn't bring her downstairs. No, she's too big. I wonder how big she was. Um, I think she was almost six feet tall. Oh, wow. Like, she's tall. Oh. And not fat, but, like, stocky, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, chief Moran, who is the chief, had made his way to John's office, and that's where he found the notes John had taped to his filing cabinet. The chief couldn't care less about John's little game of notes, so he just got some another officer with a prior. What is that? Like to a pry- crowbar? There you go. A crowbar to pry the drawers open where he found the guns and the sealed envelope to John's pastor. Now, this is interesting. So, he opened the letter and read the confession that John wrote to his pastor. Then the chief called Pastor Ray, w- Ray Winkle. Mm-hmm. Look the name of um, the, de- Ace Ventura. Yeah, the detective. <laughs> yep. Um, and he woke him up. Around midnight, the pastor showed up to the list house and identified the victims. Again, I'm not quite sure why they needed a third person to identify the victims because the neighbors could identify him, Ed could identify him, and now the pastor. Um, so I don't know. I'm not, a, I'm not a cop. I don't know. But to say that the pastor was shocked would be an understatement. He didn't understand who would do such a thing and ask the chief that very question. The chief then handed the pastor the letter. Um, and then, once the pastor read the letter, he didn't want to give it back to the chief. Why? He, because he wanted, he told the chief he sh- the letter should be confidential and should be used in, with discretion if he ever referred to it. So, a pastor is pretty much telling the chief what to do. The chief's like, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I'm going to do what I want, which is the law, but okay. Right. Since it's evidence of a mass murder, he wasn't going to try to hide it like the pastor wanted. And that, like, seems sketchy to me. Like, he wanted to help John get away with it once he knew one of his... What do they call him? The flock? His flock murdered his family. Isn't that what they call them? I don't know what they're called. His... I don't know what they called either. Like... He, was Someone, he, he wasn't like a clergyman or anything, was he? No, he was the pastor. No, but John. No, he was the church's like treasurer. Oh. And he taught Sunday school for a little while. Chief Moran took the wanted poster of John List and kept it with him for 18 years. So the FBI made a wanted poster with a picture of John and stuff on it and all his information. Jingle, jingle. <laughs> <laughs> they had the fact that he wore glasses and had a specific prescription and that he had severe hemorrhoids. <laughs> Why are people guys sit there looking at his butthole? Like, no, because he'll have to, he had, they were so severe he had to, would have to go and get medication for them. That, and that must suck. And that he was um, way into the church and stuff. All the stuff about him was on the wanted poster. I thought it was funny. They were like, make sure to put that about his hemorrhoids on there. <laughs> Right? <laughs> so weird. So he kept that for 18 years until John was finally caught. He would periodically send officers to the graveyard to stake out the family's graves in case John came to visit, which he never did. He didn't give a shit. 
many people uh, started noticing people sneaking into the house and breaking in after they moved the bodies and stuff. Um, the house had been ransacked for trophies. Like, people took the numbers off the house, door handles, stuff like that, so they can be like, ooh, look, I got this from the murder house. Oh my gosh, that's awful. They hired somebody to manage the house after the murders because they were worried it was going to get burned down. Since a lot of people were going in for seances and using candles and smoking that reefer, quote unquote. What? <laughs> That's what the guy that was being in the house like, oh, those kids are coming in smoking that reefer. Smoking that reefer. Oh my gosh. Lovely boy. He's so pretty. Just so everybody knows, she's talking about her dog. Oh. <laughs> she was not expecting me to hit record right then. I, I love my bubby boy. He's so good. On August 30th, 1972, back to the story. Back to the story. <laughs> the list house finally burned down. The fire department was called at 3.17 a.m. and the house burned for more than 12 hours. Oh, wow. All that was left was the front columns in a small section of the dining area. And the cause of the fire was arson. They said they could smell gasoline and stuff. Like somebody burned it down on purpose. Hmm. By December 1971, because we're going back. Uh, that was bur- burning uh, 72. But So, December 1971, John had made his way to Colorado. He bought a trailer in a trailer park for a little over $1,000. When he signed the receipt, he signed it as Robert P. Clark. Do you remember that name? Yeah, the kid from college. Yeah, that didn't know him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't need any ID in doing this, only cash for the trailer. And now that means John List has become Robert Clark. Oh my gosh. Right? That's awful. Um, he waited until most of his money ran out before he would get a job. Every day he would walk, get his papers, and read them. Like, every day. He'd get in on a suit, walk to the store. Be weird. And buy his newspapers. He was looking for any hint of his crime. On December 10th, he would finally find what he was looking for. On page 15 of the Rocky Mountain News, the title read, Police Seeking Accountant and Slaying of Five. The article was short and didn't have any real facts on the case. Not only did he wait on the job, he waited on the car as well. He started taking the bus. It's crazy how much he changed. Because if you remember back, he would all, you know, be in his suit. He wanted, he couldn't. Imagine being poor, so he had to kill his whole family. Mm-hmm. But now he has no car. He lives in a trailer with no job, and he's taking the bus. Right. He got a job as a fry cook at a motel. Yeah. One that wouldn't take a job if he wasn't going to be vice president is now a fry cook. He moved out of the trailer to an apartment near his co-worker and friend, Gary, in Denver. That way they could ride to work together. The apartment was furnished and usually only had people staying for six months or so, like a seasonal rental. Yeah. Like they have in New York and stuff. He ended up staying there for three years. By 1977, John had started dating a woman, Dolores H. Miller. She was in her mid-30s who had just gotten divorced. Wait, how old is he? Oh, shoot. Older? (laughs) (laughs) So he pretends to be... Oh, he's 52. Oh, Wrote that down. (laughs) I see that now. Um, While he was dating Dolores, he started to change his ways a bit. He even bought a pair of jeans. Ooh. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) At first, Dolores wasn't 
into getting married again, especially to a 46-year-old widower, quote-unquote 46. John was really 52, but shaved six years off to be Bob Clark. Dolores wasn't that into John at first. He didn't have a great job, but he was persistent and basically just wore her down. <laughs> so just like he did to Helen. Like, Helen really wasn't that interested. Right. Her husband just died, but he kept bugging her. Like, this guy's like a sexual predator. Too. So like he... Marriage predator. Full on changed his name. Yeah, Bob Clark. Hmm. But this is 1971. So he signed a piece of paper and then all of a sudden, you know what I mean? Like, right. He signed a receipt. Now, oh, I'm Bob Clark. I got to get my driver's license. They didn't have the stuff they had now. Um, Dolores never really got into his background. John just told her that his wife died from cancer and that she was really sickly before she died. That's about it. After a while, John started getting back into accounting with Dolores' urging. Roberto Carpeting is where he worked. It was an easy job to get since all he had to do was billing and he stayed there for two years. He was there for two years and nobody remembers anything about him except for the fact that he ate lunch at the same time every day. Can you imagine being somewhere for two years, working with people five days a week? I wish I could be that person. Where people just don't remember. No, yeah, just don't notice you. <laughs> I just don't notice you. He, I yeah. guess that's a way to get away with a lot of shit. Right. Well, apparently he did. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I don't think I could be, or either of us. I don't. There's always something about us when people are like, "Oh, I know Nicole. She's this, or she's she's the loud one. She wore pajamas to school. <laughs> I wore pajamas to school for the first year. I remember her yelling from one end of the hallway to the other. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Does that help people remember me? <laughs> I mean, from high school, maybe. Now now they're like, no, that's a lady with 100 dogs. I have three dogs. <laughs> just three. Three dogs. And they're the cutest. Now they're so annoying. Your, kid, your kids are what people know you for now. Like, oh, those adorable, sweet kids. Oh, they're so sweet. To, to, to everyone you, else. Why don't you come sit at my house for a little bit? Then you can see how sweet they are. Exactly. Everybody oh, they are that. really sweet. They are. To their auntie, they are. Oh, they're sweet to me, too. Sometimes. <laughs> More times than not. Well, yeah. He then went to all packaging as an office manager. Once again, they didn't remember him. <laughs> Other than the fact that if you brought up religion, he'd bore you to literal tears. About talking about, like, he would just go on and on and on. Oh, Jesus. In 1981, Dolores and John bought a condo together. Although Dolores moved in, John would stay in his apartment trying to build himself a new business. After bugging, literally bugging Dolores for years and years, she finally gave in and they got married on November 23rd, 1985. You make it such a weird face. I don't know. He's a creep. Yeah. It was a fact. So this is something that when I was reading it, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? So they got married in a Lutheran church in Risertown, Maryland. This is 20 miles away from where John and Helen got married 30 years before, uh, 34 years before this. So 20 miles away from where he married his first wife. That was ballsy. To like. That is really ballsy. What he no remorse, like I could, uh, you know what I mean. <laughs> he goes and marries a new woman. Twenty miles away from me, married his first wife, where he, and then he killed her. So That's I don't think horrible. he gave a shit. Uh, the more research I did on him, the more he made me feel icky. 
You know, like when you read somebody <laughs> about you feel icky. Like you're like, ugh. Like he just seems like a super creeper. Like something is definitely not right in his head. There's something I'm gonna actually have you read about what he said to Connie Chung in an interview. I think it's. Connie Chung, like on NBC or ABC. What the heck is she on? ABC News. Yeah. She used to be. That's Maury Povich's wife. Oh, okay. But he, she interviewed him, and the stuff he says is just, you can clearly see he doesn't, did not give a shit. That's gross. He was just so cold and calculating, no remorse. I don't, yeah, I don't think he even thought about it after. So, just, that, But that's just someone that has... Severe mental issues. He's sociopath, I think. Like, I, I would know. feel sad just smacking someone. I, he didn't. <laughs> and he had a whole day. If you remember, he literally had a whole day to think after he shot Helen. He had all, and his mom, he had all day. Should I kill my kids? Yeah, I guess I'm going to do it. I'm going to go pick up my kid from school while she's sick and then run into the house before her so I could shoot her. Like you, uh, I feel like if I was a kid and I saw him like running ahead of me, I'm like, um, what is this man in a suit doing running? Nope, yeah. I just won't go in. I'll just stay in the car. Yeah, okay, I'm just gonna get into the driver's seat and skedaddle. Right. Um. After they married, John finally moved in with Dolores to the condo they had bought four years before this, so they hadn't lived together for four years because that's how religious they were. Wait, she's religious too. Yeah, they both go to the Lutheran church. In 1986, John was fired from all packaging for the same reason he was getting fired from jobs before, not being able to manage people. Once again, he spent his days looking for a job, sitting at the kitchen table in a full suit, going over the wand. Yeah, be wheeling. Oh, he wasn't doing a wheelie. Who the heck is that? He's, he lives right across the street. He just goes up and down. He goes up and down. He rides wheelies a lot. Somebody on a dirt bike. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> um. He spent his, like I said, in a full suit at the kitchen table like we are now. <laughs> going over the want ads, like doing, taking a little marker and circling. <laughs> <laughs> so he kept trying to open a consulting business called Robert Clark Associates. A neighbor of John and Dolores actually ended up finding an article about the List murders. It came across a picture of John List that was on the wanted posters in that article. So you know like the National Enquirer? In like, pe- not people, but like, all those magazines that aren't. The National Enquirer is a fake one. Yeah. Yeah. National Enquirer, like the, the checkout magazines where you see mm-hmm. them all at the checkout. This was one of them. I forget the name of it. It's like Wild World or Wild, I don't remember. And she found an article about the murder. Like, the, it was called The Perfect Murder and it had his picture in it. She, the neighbor found it. Brought it to Dolores and was like, don't you think this looks like Bob? And Dolores was like, pushed it off. She's like, nah, no, not at all. Like, and, and it says, like, he's an accountant. He is a churchgoer. He does this. He wears suits all the time. Stuff he like that. hemorrhoids. Yeah. So the neighbor, Wanda, tried to put it out of her mind. Saying, like, okay, if his wife doesn't think it's him, then it's probably not him. So she let it go for... A little while. Just least. a little while. Just a little while, because this is in 87. Hey, and when he, I was born. he was caught in 89. A little while, so two years? Yeah. But she, I mean, the picture was from 70, 
70s. Mm-hmm. And now this is almost over 10 years later. Almost 20. So he was finally able to get a job in 1988 as a junior accountant all the way in Richmond, Virginia. They ended up buying a house in Brandermill. While they got used to living in Virginia, the circle was starting to close in around John, although he didn't know it yet. He must have thought it had been 18 years and that everyone forgot about what he did. But he was wrong. In 1971, when he killed his whole family, they didn't have TV shows to literally highlight criminals and help catch them. They did in 1989, though. Oh, is it like the... Uh, what the heck is it called? America's Most Wanted? Yeah, that. Yes. <laughs> That's what. May 21st, 1989, they highlighted John List and his crimes on that show. The officers in Westfield, New Jersey, were hopeful that the episode would bring in an arrest. Even before the show aired, they contacted all the witnesses from the original case, like the neighbor, Ed, the pastor and stuff, just to get him prepared. Yeah. In case it something did happen to it. The only picture they had, though, when they were prepping for the episode was... Um, one of John they had, it was like 19 or 20 years old. So it wasn't very current. So instead of retouching the photo, like you see a missing persons where it's like age progression. Right. I mean, this is obviously the 90s, 80s. So they're not going to have what we have now. So they hired a sculptor called Frank Binder. Or Binder. And he was starting to get a reputation for accurately reconstructing bodies. So like somebody, Jane Doe was found in the woods. Mm-hmm. No skin. Like bones and stuff. Oh, he so was gonna. He sculpted. Yeah, he sculpted people's faces. If they were too unrecognizable. Yeah. And he was getting really good at getting very, very close to what they're supposed to look like. So they hired him. He threw himself into the work, and he wanted to make sure that he would highlight what John looked like in eight, 1989. He actually does research on like the psychology of this guy, background, family stuff like that. So when the episode aired, they had the bust. I don't have a picture of it. I'm sorry. But it is 100%. Like, it looks exactly like him when they arrest him. They put them two together. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like, the guy did a really, really good job. And that is why he got busted because... They one got of the busted because of his bust? He did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Yes, he got busted for his bust. <laughs> Um, when the episode aired, there were a few people watching it very, very attentively. One of those people would be the murderer himself. And one would be the reason why John was arrested. Sorry for that creepy noise. That is a dog drinking water. We gotta find a better place to record in your house. <laughs> we can always go into the basement. But it's chilly down there. Yeah. It won't, won't be later on this week. It's supposed to be like 90. Wanda, the old neighbor of John and Dolores, the one who found the article and tried to open Dolores' eyes to it, was watching America's Most Wanted on that night. She watched it and was once again sure that the Bob Clark she knew was John List, the mass murderer. She wrote down the tip line number and decided to do what was right, and she had somebody in her house call. She didn't want to call herself. Yeah, see? Exactly. She just looked up the photo of the bust. It is, right? It's Wait, exact. It's, this is Frank Bender. Frank, oh, Frank Bender's bust. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty good. His nose is, his, 
glass is a little bit crooked and his nose is a little bit muffed, but no, I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. The tip from Wanda's house went to the FBI. Once there, an agent named August and his partner went knocking on John List's door on June 1st. He wasn't there, but they went in and talked to Dolores. They showed her the flyer, and by all accounts, she knew it was him. She was shaking and crying, but she tried to deny what was basically right there. Although he wasn't there, she was able to show the officers their wedding photo, and that was it was very clear John List. August called into the office to have some other officers meet him at John's office while Harris' partner stayed with Dolores while August went to make the arrest. When August asked him if he was John List, he just said no and kept saying he wasn't John List. He was arrested at 11.10 a.m. on June 1st, 1989. How many years? Because that's today. Did you say August 1st? June 1st. June 1st. 1989. The, the agent's name's August. Oh. <laughs> Today is June 1st. Like 40 years. Happy birthday, Hunter. Yeah, happy birthday. I texted her earlier. Oh, uh, I did too. He came quietly and never asked why he was being arrested. He was fingerprinted and finally truly identified as John Emil List. He had a hearing and one of his signed papers he said he was swearing he was Robert Clark. So he's still saying, no, I'm not. Dolores got John a lawyer to help with his case. Dolores created a statement for the newspaper. She asked the press to give her privacy and she wouldn't be making any more comments on the matter. She continued to say she was shocked at Bob's quote-unquote arrest, what he was charged with. She, was, she said, this is not the man I know. The man I know is kind, loving, a devoted husband, and a dear friend. He is quiet yet friendly man who loves his work and the people he works with. He loves our new home and he loves working in and out of it. And around it. We both enjoy going to church. Bob, quote unquote, is a man of devotion and faith. I find this hard to believe. I hope somehow this is not true. If And if it is, he was so stressed out that something snapped. I am devoted to him and I hope somehow God sees us through this. Blech. Like, give me a break. Well, maybe when you love someone so much, it just... He I'm... had to convince her to marry him. And now she's like, I'm going to stick by you. Well, when you are so much into your faith, though, like, what are your vows? Exactly. Uh, If I had one little inkling that somebody I knew was, like, a mass murderer, I'd be like, bye, Felicia. See you later. I'm good. Have a nice life. I feel like I'd be blind to it, honestly. (laughs) I try to to see the best in everyone. Well, I don't know. If you could, if I'm seeing that, like it's very clear, 100%. Like that's his picture. That's him. He killed well, his yeah, whole family. If you have a picture and stuff. I guess yeah. you'd be like, um, yeah. but maybe he had her brainwashed somehow. He must have. He must have. Um, Dolores went to visit him every day after the arrest. A week after his arrest, he pled not guilty on the charges and had a bail of a million dollars. He seemed happy. It was that much. Like he was. Excited that That's his bail was a million dollars. Yeah. In a press conference, Dolores denied that John was John. And she kept calling him Bob Clark in the press conferences. <laughs> if I'm like the real Bob Clark, I'm like, no, he's not. That's my name. <laughs> I'm Bob. But you have to think, how many Bob Clarks are there? Really? That's a good question. He did get the name from his little fake friend. Mm-hmm. On... June 29th. That's oh, my birthday. Your birthday. John was sent to New Jersey 
so he could go um, be extradited. Mm-hmm. So, from Virginia to New Jersey. He said he would not fight the extradition as long as he could go as Bob Clark. <laughs> Did they say no way? I mean, no, no, does they he really have him. a choice? No, yeah. Well, that's stupid. So, for the first time since November 10th, 1971, he was back in New Jersey. In March 1990, the pretrial began. The, vet, the defense was trying to throw out the confession letter. Like, saying that it was confidential, it was to his preacher, blah, blah, blah. But he left it there to be found. They right. obviously got around it. So, do you remember Jean and Jean? Yeah. Um, they were invited to the jail to confront John. Yeah, I, I guess things were different back then. So, Jean said when she was going up there, she wasn't sure what she was actually going to do. She hadn't, it's been 19 years, you know. So, what she literally did was walked up and just hugged him. She said she just had to forgive him. That's just, she couldn't Yeah, you can't live in, in, like, kind of an anger, I they, guess. It's not healthy. No. They went to a private room to talk, and it, they talked for three hours. Um, they were able to forgive him, but they also wanted him to pay for what he did. Right. And she called him John the whole time. Like, she knew it was John, and he was just like, fine. I'm John. And he, what he, when she said why, he just said it had to be done. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm sorry. In that private room at that point, if I would come across the table <laughs> real fucking quick. Um, she, after the fact, questioned to her husband, like, why didn't he just kill himself? And this is like, I'm asking the same thing. Why mm-hmm. couldn't he just take his own life and be done with it? And he thought, because he's very religious, that if he kills himself, he, he won't go will, to heaven. Yeah, he will go to heaven. But if he killed somebody, he would be able to ask for forgiveness after. So you can do something wrong as long as you are asked for forgiveness before you die. Right? That's it. what he I, thought. I don't know. Sometimes religion is hard to get a grasp of because they yeah. say, you know, God forgives. Exactly, but... Why wouldn't you forgive if you committed suicide? Exactly. That's a good question, right? <laughs> On April 12th, 1990, after hearing a week of testimony, John was found guilty of the five murders of his family. So, with the... There's no capital punishment in New Jersey in 1971. So, they followed the same rules of where... When the crime was, they followed what was going on for punishment back then. So in 1971, New Jersey didn't have capital punishment, so he got away with not getting the death penalty. Well, that's dumb. He got five life sentences, though. Yeah. Well, um, before the trial, the defense finally gave up trying to prove he wasn't John. In the end, he got what was coming to him and died all alone in jail March 21st, 2008. So he lived a long life. Right. But this is the the cherry on top of the Sunday of the story. Nobody claimed his body. Not like, even Dolores? Nobody. Nope. Yeah. So, right? He was left and it, I, I don't know if they call him Popper Graves, but he was buried at the jail or cremated. I'm not sure. But. Yeah. 
So before he passed, in 2006, he had a lovely little admirer. His name was Austin Goodrich, and he helped John write a manifesto, like a book. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you the name of it, because I don't, I'm not going to promote it here. And it's a joke. Like, he tried to say, he made excuses for everything he did. So, I don't know where you're going for the forgiveness part. If you're still blaming, he blamed Helen for everything. Losing his jobs, losing money, it was all Helen's fault. And then, he tried to say he had PTSD. He never once saw combat. But, I mean, how was the boot camp training? Like, how was, how did they do that? Because, I mean, who knows? Like, if you have a fragile mind... Sorry, I'm making excuses because sometimes <laughs> I just feel bad. Like, like I said, I, so, I try to see the best in everyone, and I always feel bad. Always. He, he claimed to have PTSD, and then he can't recall any combat in the war, but he might have had amnesia. Like, it's just excuse after excuse yeah, after excuse. Yeah, that seems a little bit ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, he literally spent the whole book trying to blame his family for him killing them. Like I said, no remorse. So I'm going to have Vicky read that one and that one. Two quotes from his interview. I feel when we get to heaven, we won't worry about these earthly things. They'll either have forgiven me or won't realize, you know, what happened. I'm sure that if we recognize each other, that we'll like each other's company, just as we did here when times were better. So like I said, he's in the mind where they're going to forgive him. When he goes back to heaven. Goes and, back to heaven? Or goes to heaven. <laughs> he thinks he's going to go to heaven and the family won't even know what happened. Right. 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 Isn't that <clears throat> the most fucked up story? It, it is weird and it's sad. It's sad that, like, what, the youngest was 13, 12? Yeah. And he decided to just blow him away because... But how could you kill a kid? Yeah, your own kid. Flesh right. and blood. Driving them in the car and they don't feel good. And you're like, oh, well, this is what it is, I guess. Because they're going to be poor. I'm sorry. Middle class is not that bad. <laughs> it isn't. Like, well, sometimes it can suck. It can suck, but I'm not, I'm not going to go around killing somebody about it. No. <laughs> I just saw that. <laughs> somebody yeah, somebody was on looking. a little razor moped. <laughs> so thank you, everyone, for tuning into our first two-part series. I know that was a rough one. And... I personally couldn't hate John List anymore. <laughs> You're Nikki's like, oh, but but really, <laughs> I can't hate people. It's hard. Well, he's dead, so we can. Hate. I still can't hate people. It's hard for me. I wish I could. Oh, I hate him, <laughs> especially stupid face. <laughs> like, well, I, I just think of like a mentally, like yeah. there was something wrong. It probably meant because of being something wrong mentally. It wasn't. It was his fault, yeah. but he was mentally unstable. So, like, but, I don't know. I can't hate people. Right. I try to figure out, like, why did you do this? There must be a reason. Yeah, because his family was going to be poor and he didn't <laughs> want that. That's literally okay, what it's mentally, <laughs> mentally, there must be a reason why. Like, I mean, he, he didn't really get abused. He, but his he, dad was not very nice to him. But his mom took made sure <laughs> that... So it was his mom's fault. Yeah, and he, he killed her too. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, it's hard for me to just hate people. I try to, me, I guess, rationalize. I guess you could say. Yeah. 
I understand. I understand. I understand. I'm not a hateful person. But I still think he's a piece of shit. Can we not? Can you say he's a piece of shit but not hate he's him? He's a very bad person. There you go. <laughs> he's he's dead. <laughs> so we will be seeing you actually in a couple days for our next episode. I hope you have a great week, and we will see you Friday. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>